0: I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 156 and it's a continuation of what we started in episode 155. I don't think it requires any additional explanation so let's just jump right back in. In episode 155 we took you in a chronology all the way up through the start of the trial. So now let's pivot into the trial. So without further ado let's listen to episode 156 of JFK The Enduring Secret. Garrison would read a 15-page opening statement taking about 45 minutes to do so in front of Judge Ed Haggerty and return for the closing arguments about 30 days later. But much of the 30 days or so of the trial in between would not see Garrison in the courtroom. He purportedly was quite busy on other matters at the time of the trial, but perhaps he truly knew how flimsy the case was and wanted to distance himself from a certain basic connection to it. The trial itself would commence on January 29, 1969, after 14 days of jury selection, and it would last for just about a month, concluding with a unanimous verdict on March 1, 1969. A verdict that took just under an hour to come to agreement on. But to be fair, when talking about the process... It was decided on the second round of balloting by the jurors. And the outcome? They acquitted Clay Shaw. The trial itself had many highlights, and not the least of which is the testimony of a tiny little man, an accountant from New York named Charles I. Spiesel, who went from what appeared for at least a moment to be a highly convincing witness for the prosecution to a mental case on cross-examination. (laughs) we'll save the details for another episode. But if there ever was a witness that single-handedly caused a case to go down the drain, here was one. Oh, and then there was the heroin addict Vernon Bundy that testified that he saw Shaw meet Oswald on the waterfront and watched Shaw hand Oswald money, all while preparing to shoot himself up with a needle full of heroin. Identifying Shaw's unusual gait or perhaps a limp as an unusual and identifying personal characteristic that caught Bundy's eye and assisted later in confirming his identity in court. Surprisingly, this witness's testimony on cross examination actually held up decently, at least better than mister Spiesel's. Trials are conducted differently under the rules of procedure for the particular court they are held in And during this particular era, in New Orleans, had its own particulars. In those days, you could surprise the defense with witnesses giving them little or no time for previous discovery. But thanks to a mole inside of Garrison's office that had decided to leave, Irvin Diamond and Clay Shaw had the list of potential witnesses in advance and what they might testify to. You know, what I told you a little bit earlier about Bethel. And so while hastily done and at high costs, Diamond had research flown in from New York the night before Speesel's testimony. That would lead to his unraveling on cross-examination. Yes, I am teasing you and you will have to wait for the episode in order to hear it. That is the rest of the Speesel story. Dean Andrews' story is an interesting one as well, because it became clear to Andrews as time went on that identifying who this man, Clay Bertrand, really was seemed to generate a real danger to his own being. And he told Garrison that one day over lunch in the French Quarter. Garrison was getting exceedingly irritated about the lack of cooperation from Andrews related to locating Bertrand, in the effort it was taking his team as they themselves continued roaming the French Quarter in search of him. Garrison warned Andrews that he had already testified under oath about Bertrand to the Warren Commission and given statements to the FBI. Any further attempts to resist or obfuscate the truth about the identity of Bertrand were going to result in a perjury charge. And, lo and behold, that is exactly what happened when Garrison had finally had enough of the Dean Andrews shuck and jive and his changing story on who Bertrand was, including his faint attempt to pin it on a bar owner in the French Quarter, Eugene Davis, well, that finally got him the perjury charge from Garrison, and a charge he was ultimately convicted of, but never served any time over. The perjury charges against Andrews were later dismissed. Perhaps the most damaging part of the proceedings were related to evidence and testimony that was suppressed after a one-day hearing in front of Judge Haggerty. You see, at Clay Shaw's booking, which occurred right after his arrest, he used his alias, Bertrand, and that linked him directly, using his own statement to the man they were looking for in the French Quarter, the man that called Dean Andrews shortly after the assassination and asked Andrews to represent Oswald, a key linkage that would have put the conspiracy theory being set forth by Garrison on such firmer ground. Only the judge ruled that Shaw's Miranda rights were violated and that his lawyers were not present during his fingerprinting as well. And so the evidence. Shaw's own admission that he was Bertrand trand could not be used in court. As I said, this was one of the most damaging rulings in favor of the defense in the Clay Shaw trial. And it contains more story, including Haggerty's highly irregular comments that he would not believe the statements of Aloysius Habegorst, who was the New Orleans booking officer that processed Shaw. Why he said that, why he felt it necessary to make that highly unusual and perhaps prejudicial statement is not entirely clear, but he did. Mark Lane interviewed a number of the jurors after the trial was over, and while the interviews were never published, he declared that the jurors felt as if a conspiracy had been proven, and proven despite the fact that there was not sufficient evidence to prove Clay Shaw's involvement. Some would say the trial was a circus. Some would counter that by saying that the case was undermined severely by the lack of certain key witnesses who refused participation or who fled to states where the governors would not force extradition. Sergio Aracha Smith was an example of that. He was involved in a key event regarding a robbery that took place in Huma, Louisiana, at a location operated by Slumberger. And there was evidence that clearly connected he and Ferry related to this arms contraband story. More about the Huma story in a later episode. This trial was the only venue in the history of the United States to bring some of the evidence and testimony to bear that might have otherwise never seen the light of day. It was the first and only court appearance of the Zapruder film and the only time that Richard Randolph Carr was able to tell his story under oath. And, of course, there were the moments of truth spoken by Dr. Pierre Fink about the autopsy. Some would say that this was a tragic trial that was really not about the guilt or innocence of Clay Shaw, but rather purely evolved into a vehicle in which Jim Garrison used to make the case to the American people of the existence of a conspiracy in the assassination of JFK and to do it in a courtroom where the evidence is supposed to prevail. The only chance the American people would ever get to truly litigate the case. And so the moral question is whether this quest for the greater good, even though the verdict exonerated Clay Shaw, was morally justified. Shaw testified in his own defense at the trial, and he appeared to clearly perjure himself. And of course, later, there would be clear evidence that he was linked to the CIA. And of course, we'll cover that in another episode. And even Judge Haggerty afterward would weigh in that he thought that Shaw had not been telling the truth. That doesn't mean that he was guilty of a conspiracy to kill the president, but it does point to the fact that he was probably lying about material facts, and it does cast some doubt when you are evaluating things, although certainly not tipping it in favor of conviction. Garrison would subsequently charge Shaw with perjury, which was and still is an almost unheard of course of action as it relates to charging defendants in a case who testify on their own behalf. As a result, Shaw would get one last shot at stepping up to a witness stand and repeating the statements that he was being charged with, repeating that he had never met David Ferry or Lee Harvey Oswald. Only this time, it was in a federal court. Shaw's legal team, after Shaw was handed the perjury charge, sought relief in the federal court system. It is a rare circumstance that a federal court will intervene in such a circumstance associated with the operation of a state court, but in this case, they did. Clay Shaw, the plaintiff, filed a complaint to enjoin and restrain the defendant Jim Garrison, the district attorney for the parish of Orleans, state of Louisiana, and members of his staff from further persecution of a pending state criminal case. Shaw sought to restrain the defendant and his assistants from filing and prosecuting any additional criminal charges arising out of or incident to the allegations. In that same complaint, Shaw would charge that Garrison conspired with the three key members of the Truth or Consequences Committee to deprive him of his constitutional rights. After a conference with the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana, New Orleans Division, along with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a panel of judges from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals entered an order directing the district court to hold a hearing on the plaintiff's application for injunctive relief. Once given that instruction, the district court Entered a temporary restraining order enjoining Garrison and the DA's office from taking any further action in the prosecution of the perjury charge, pending a hearing in federal court on the preliminary injunction, which was set for January 25th. At that hearing, which took three days, numerous witnesses were heard and 55 exhibits were offered and filed into evidence by the plaintiff. This federal court hearing, as I stated, lasted three days, and it obligated most of the major players in the drama to come and testify, including Garrison himself. At the end of the hearing, the judge issued a blistering rebuttal of Garrison's actions in the Clay Shaw trial itself, and the net result was that Shaw's petition for relief was granted, and Garrison's pursuit of a perjury charge against Shaw was now finished. But the real gem of all of us as JFK jurors, so to speak, is the gem associated with the testimony that arose out of the Christenberry hearing, where the good judge asked some very pointed questions, and the answers, now given long after the Shaw trial had been completed, were telling. I am going to leave all of the incredible details of this for a separate podcast episode. But the Kristen Berry hearing decision is one of the least known aspects of the Garrison investigation. And in fact, it's one of the most fascinating. In the end, a man like Garrison had instincts that got ahead of evidence. And that, in my opinion, was the real tragedy here. Some would also say that Garrison had much higher political aspirations, and that seems logical. A man in public life with his intellect, his personality, his background, and his widespread public support, he had all the attributes and capabilities to achieve higher office. The real question for all of us is whether his motivations to pursue the trial, particularly after the death of David Ferry, were tied in any way to these political aspirations or not. The CIA kept newspaper clippings of the goings-on in the case and one such clipping file was declassified. It was one that I recently reviewed. It contained an article that I pondered about in light of everything that I had been looking at. It seems perfectly situated to tell the story in the way the CIA might have smiled like a Cheshire cat after reading it. It appeared on June 21, 1967, in the Baltimore Sun, and it quoted the DA in Miami, Richard Gerstein, whom we acquainted you with in the very opening episode of the investigation. A small newspaper article affirmed the fact that Gerstein and Garrison had collaborated and worked in some ways together, particularly as it related to relevant activities that took place in Gerstein's jurisdiction related to the case. Gerstein was careful not to pass judgment but to emphasize that the process should be allowed to play out and a small line near the bottom of the small article would quote Gerstein saying that he was sure that Garrison had aspirations to be a United States senator. In January 1971 Shaw would file a civil lawsuit against Garrison and certain of his staff members at the DA's office. In it He would seek approximately $5 million in civil damages associated with the wrongful prosecution of Shaw, although the damages that were sought were purported in some references to be worth as much as $12 million, and so it is quoted as such, for example, in Patricia Lambert's book. The suit was eventually resolved by the ultimate demise of Clay Shaw and his premature death at the age of 61. It was resolved prior to a civil trial or a civil settlement being effectuated. Generally, under Louisiana law, a plaintiff's cause of action ceases to exist in a case like this upon his or her death. But there are complex elements of this particular civil damages case that are predicated on the violation of Shaw's civil rights. Because of that, Shaw's attorney petitioned the courts to step into his shoes after Shaw's death and continue with the litigation. Ultimately, though, the case was dismissed in favor of Garrison and the other defendants. Case closed on another chapter of the Jim Garrison and Clay Shaw story. In 1973, Garrison was tried and found not guilty by the jury for accepting bribes to protect illegal pinball machine operations. He was tried in federal court. Pershing Gervais, Garrison's former chief investigator, testified that Garrison had received approximately $3,000 every two months for nine years from the dealers. Acting as his own defense attorney, Garrison called the allegations baseless and claimed that they were concocted as part of a U.S. government effort to destroy him because of Garrison's efforts to implicate the CIA in the Kennedy assassination. In the end, the jury found Garrison not guilty. And later, in an interview conducted by New Orleans reporter, the none other than Rosemary James, an interview conducted with Pershing Gervais, well, in that interview, Gervais admitted to concocting the charges against Garrison. In that same year, Garrison was defeated for re-election as district attorney by Harry Connick Sr., yes, the father of the iconic singer. On April 15, 1978, Garrison won a special election over a Republican candidate, Thomas F. Jordan, for Louisiana's Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal judgeship. It was a position for which he was later reelected and which he held until his death. In 1987, Garrison started his movie career, so to speak, playing the judge, Jim Garrison, imagine that, in the film The Big Easy. And Garrison was also featured in the Men Who Killed Kennedy series, beginning in 1988. After the trial, Garrison wrote three books on the Kennedy assassination. A Heritage of Stone, which he wrote in 1970. The Star-Spangled Contract, which he wrote in 1976 and which is purportedly a fictional book, but based on the JFK assassination. And then his bestseller, On the Trail of the Assassins, that he wrote in 1988. We all know that Kevin Costner played a fictionalized version of Garrison in the movie JFK. Garrison himself had a small on-screen role in the film, playing the United States Supreme Court Chief Justice, Earl Warren. How ironic. Garrison died of cancer in 1992, and he was survived by his five children. Clay Shaw never recovered from the devastating effects of the trial. It was purported that his legal expenses were almost $200,000, severely depleting his wealth, and he died on August 15, 1974, at the age of 61. Shaw, among his many talents, was a published playwright. The best known of his works was a play entitled Submerged, which was co-written in 1929 by Stuart Cottman, and it was when both were still high school students. In 1979, Richard Helms, the former director of the CIA, testified under oath that Shaw had been a part-time contact of the Domestic Contact Service, or DCS, of the CIA, where Shaw volunteered information from his travels abroad, mostly to Latin America antagonists of Garrison are quick to point out that hundreds of thousands of Americans have provided such information to the DCS on a non-clandestine basis and that such acts of cooperation should not be confused with an actual agency relationship. Regarding Clay Shaw's links to the CIA, it was later found that Shaw represented the United States on the board of directors for Permindex. Shortly after Shaw's arrest in 1967, in fact, three days after on March 4th, 1967, the Italian left-wing newspaper Paisa Serra published a story alleging that Shaw was linked to the CIA through his involvement in the Centro Mondiale Commerciale, which was a subsidiary of Perm Index, in which Shaw was also said to be a board member. According to the magazine, the CMC had been a front organization developed by the CIA for transferring funds to Italy for illegal political espionage activities. And the same organization had attempted to depose French President Charles de Gaulle in the early 1960s. On March 6th, the newspaper printed other allegations about individuals it said were connected to Perm Index, including Louis Bloomfield, whom it described as an American agent who now plays the role of a businessman from Canada and who established secret ties in Rome with deputies of the Christian Democrats and neo-fascist parties. Shaw's involvement in these two organizations, while elements of the CIA would continue to refute the significance of these two organizations and the related significance of Shaw's connection to them, it is known that after the attempts on Charles de Gaulle's life, the French intelligence agency, in a very short period of time, completely traced the assassination attempt back to connections to Perm Index, as well as other organizations, perhaps even some domestically located in the United States. But that issue, and that matter, is left to another episode. Thank you for listening to episode 156 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.